0: Two Guys Talking Nostalgia Engine is here. And we need your help. Two Guys Talking has begun stockpiling reviews of great, classic movies, and we want to know what you want us to review. Access TwoGuysTalking.com now and tell us which classic movies, on DVD and Blu-ray, we should put into the Two Guys Talking Perspective Review crosshairs, and help us fuel the Internet's best repository for engaging, nostalgic feature film reviews. (laughs) 2GuysTalking.com and click any one of the Nostalgia Engine pictures. Tell us which movies you want right now. Action, horror, comedies, even the occasional rom-com. Yeah. Access 2GuysTalking.com That's the number 2. GuysTalking.com. The Nostalgia Engine. Ride in nostalgic style while you listen. 2GuysTalking.com
1: Have you ever had the feeling of being watched? Hidden eyes following you, a cold chill crawling up your spine, the hairs on the back of your neck standing straight up. Do you know what that is? It's fear. It's fear. Fear is the most basic human emotion, tied into our instinct to survive. Fear gives us the means to overcome great odds or cripple us with paralyzing dread. Dread. But fear can also entertain. (laughs) Turn off all the lights, lock your closet door, and ignore the sounds from beneath your bed. It's time for Two Guys Talking Horror. As children of the 80s, our imaginations propelled us into great adventures. Fighting against galactic empires in a galaxy far, far away? Yep. Learning to never say die as we hunt for pirate treasure through booby-trapped caves? Of course. Throwing on our proton packs, crossing the streams, and saving the world? Do you even have to ask? Thanks to the films of the decade... My friends and I never ran out of things to pretend to be. But once in a generation, a film comes along and does more than entertain you. It teaches you as well. Teaches you to face your fears. Teaches you to never give up hope. Teaches you Wolfman does have nards. Gather the gang and meet at the clubhouse. Because it's time for the Two Guys Talking Horror Perspective review of the 1987 classic, The Monster
0: Squad.
1: Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host Nicholas J. Hearn, and with me today, my hetero life mate, as usual, Jason Contini. Jason, how you doing? How's it going? We are going to be talking about one of—I definitely know—one of my favorite movies from the 80s, if not of all times. One of my favorite movies, Jason. One of yours? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a constant watch all the time. But We're going to dive into all of that and more. But first, a quick bit of housekeeping. <laughs> the Ghostbusters Perspective Review. Now, yes, that's right. During a perspective review, I'm going to talk about another perspective review. Yet another classic from the 80s. A decade that just gave and gave and gave... And we just kept on taking and taking and taking. uh, But not too long ago, myself and Mike Wilkerson, one of the other great podcasters here at the Two Guys Talking Studio, we sat down, we watched Ghostbusters, we watched some of the special features. And and, uh, even though I, I know that movie by heart, it seems like every single time I sit down and watch it, there's always something else I notice that... Maybe I didn't notice the last time I watched it, or maybe I'd forgotten that I'd noticed it before. Always a good sign of a good movie. Exactly, exactly. It's all rewatchability. That's the whole point. And it, Ghostbusters does have that rewatchability, especially after the questionable decision of Hollywood to uh, remake in some way, shape, or form of that film. Uh, now is the time to go back and revisit the real classic and forget forget those silly remakes, you can listen to the Ghostbusters Perspective Review over at twoguystalking.com forward slash Ghostbusters. We'll also place a link to it over on the show notes on this Perspective Review as well. Now that we've taken care of housekeeping, Jason, let's get started. We have a long way to go and a short time to get there with the Monster Squad Perspective review <laughs> the hype this film came out in 1987 so that means you and i were both eight years old i don't remember a damn thing about this movie back in 1987
2: well you know and i, I don't think i even saw it in the theater i think i saw it like two years later on i don't know showtime or hbo or and and honestly i'm not even sure if i saw it there or if my dad taped it off mm. of hbo and i saw that and of course it still had the hbo beginning to it right, right? oh
1: yeah that cl- that that epic beginning yeah, yeah with the swooping down swooping through, through and the, the lights are like flying through yeah, yeah. oh um, god I, I miss hbo at least hbo back in the 80s
2: yeah so i i don't think i i don't think i saw it until then and i certainly didn't hear about it beforehand and and from people that i've talked to it sounds like it wouldn't have mattered if i was older anyway because it sounds like nobody really had heard of it it kind of came and went from what i understand from people
1: yes actually actually it did It, it very much did and we we will definitely get to that later on I remember seeing a trailer for this movie, not on television. I saw a trailer at the beginning of a VHS tape that I had rented from the local video store. I can't remember what movie that was, but just like going to the movies, the VHS... And they still do it at the beginning of DVDs, but now you have the ability to just hit a button and you skip all of that stuff. Back on VHS, you had to fast forward through it all. But if you were anything like me, you go to the theater early so that you don't miss out on the trailers
2: well, yeah it's part of the experience it's part yeah. of the movie going experience and that sadly people are starting to get away from but yeah yeah no i don't i don't like to fast forward through the trailers even on a on a dvd or skip them i guess right. is what you would do know, you, now you have no one. idea
1: what you're going to miss
2: yeah right yeah I mean, who knows you know there, I've, there have been a lot of films that i have been introduced to via this random trailer
1: on the video
2: or dvd that i would never have known
1: about and that's exactly how i was introduced to the monster squad I'm sitting down, we're getting ready to watch this movie. Again, can't remember what the movie is, but one of the coming attractions at the beginning of the VHS was the Monster Squad. And they had this great tagline because the movie came out in '87, so it's after Ghostbusters. And the tagline, one of the most in my mind, the most popular of the taglines is you know who to call when you have ghosts. But who do you call when you have monsters? <laughs> That's a great... I want to know, who, who do I call? Please tell me. Oh, you called the monsters. Well, Okay, well now I know. Again, I never saw it in the theater, but eventually it did show up at the local video store. And that iconic cover, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll post a picture on the show notes... For this perspective review over on our over at our website to show you that iconic with the car cover with the with the hearse uh-huh. the black hearse with the skull yep. hood ornament and the kids are all sitting on the hood of the car and then in the back you've got the monsters in And if I, was,
2: if I remember right, weren't they like a pseudo silhouette formed out of the the fog or the, yes. the mist? Yes, that's, but yeah,
1: okay. Very creepy, very iconic, and anybody who grew up enjoying the old universal monster movies that right there just jumps right off of the shelf and into your hands and mommy mommy we must rent this right and i remember i rented that over and over and over until it finally showed up on cable and we taped it and then i wore the tape out and then i'd have to wait for it to show up on cable again and tape it again yep yep, and all that stuff but yeah very little hype except for that one random trailer viewing and now it's i mean this movie is a staple in my in my life, in my existence, I, I I don't really go a week without quoting the Monster Squad.
2: Yeah, I I quoted in my day to day as well. It's interesting though that you got got to see a trailer because until, and and I have very vague recollections of the first time I even watched it. I I do recall moments of watching it the first time, but mm-hmm. but it's almost like a part of me just kind of has had always seen it, and like <laughs> I came out of the womb. Having it's always already seen, been there. It's yeah. already been there. It was in my my memory even before I saw it so I I don't remember any
1: trailer or or anything like that so it's pretty amazing that you have that I don't want to ask the audience what do you remember back in 1987 just before this movie came out if you were alive of course hopefully you weren't dead (laughs) do you remember going to a movie theater and seeing a trailer on the big screen do you remember seeing a tv advertisement Do you have any memories of any of the hype for the Monster Squad back in 1987? Let us know by going over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Fill out the little web form on the right and let us know. What do you remember? The Money. Now, Jason, as we both know, being filmmakers ourselves... Making a movie, it's a business. And the whole point of the business is you got to spend some money to make some money. Yep. We're keep perpetuating the business. Now, how much do you think the budget for this film was? No clue. Come on, give it a guess. Okay. Let's say... It's more than $5. I'll tell you that. Okay. <laughs>
2: let's see. Uh, I don't know. Let's say $87. Uh, let's guess somewhere around $20
1: million. You know what? Had they had $20 million, this movie would have been completely different. You, you, a little high, a little high on that. It was actually only $12 million okay. for the budget of this movie. But technically speaking, had they had $20 million, they probably could have pulled off the original opening to the film that writer Shane Black and Fred Deckard actually came up with but of course you know they didn't have the money to do that and we'll get to that once we get into the meat of the actual movie. Now, let's go tra- travel back 1987. What do you think the opening weekend total was for this movie?
2: I'd be pretty shocked if it even
1: if it even broke 2 or 3 million for an opening weekend. I oh. I, I would be shocked. My research has discovered that out of one thousand two hundred and eighty theaters in which it played, it made just under two million dollars. Wow! Opening weekend, one million nine hundred twenty thousand six hundred seventy-eight dollars. Wow. Okay. All right. The promotion for the film actually was was almost non-existent because right. they did not know who to market the film for. Do you market towards adults? Well, adults aren't going to want to go see a, a movie that's got kids running around in it. Do you market for kids? Well, it's got some adult themes in it. The parents may not let the kids go see the movie.
2: Do you market it for the the people that grew up with the Universal monster films? Well, they don't want to see modern horror films. They want to see the Universal stuff. Do you market it towards the kids? Well, they want to see the modern stuff. They want it Freddy, Jason, Michael. They don't want Dracula and Frankenstein. Right, it, you're, they were you're caught in uh, rock.
1: monsters. Dude. Yeah, exactly. Rocking a hard place. And and in my research, I could only find two different money numbers. The domestic grosses of the film back in 1987 and then the actual home DVD sales when the movie was released on DVD for the first time in 2007. Couldn't find any information on the VHS sales or any else, anything else like that. So domestic, what do you think this movie made back in 1987 when it went through its whirlwind tour <laughs> in the
2: theaters? Well, what are we saying? We said uh, it's just under two million for the opening weekend. Mm-hmm. I am going to guess, out of an entire run, maybe around five million.
1: That would be nice for five million. A little, little over. Sadly, because this movie did not have the marketing campaign that it needed, it did not make all that much during its uh, initial theatrical release. According to my research, only three million. Seven hundred sixty-nine thousand nine hundred and ninety dollars. Wow, less than four million. Ah, I can I can understand how this film kind of just came and went, sadly, very sadly. And I remember I remember VHS tapes back in the late '80s, early '90s, being a bit pricey. Definitely more than a DVD, a normal DVD than today. I remember some VHS movies. Running around $30. Oh, sure. Oh, I, that's I, why we did not own very many brand new VHS tapes. It was mostly used things from the video store. Well, I remember there were some video stores near us that were selling things
2: like, uh, well, Ghostbusters and Batman. I think yeah. both came out at $90. I think even as late as Tombstone was 90 bucks when it came out. Yeah,
1: see, this is just, it's just way too expensive. So I, I, I never owned a copy, a VHS copy of The Monster Squad, but in 2007 when it was released and uh, completely unbeknownst to me i'm walking through walmart one day and then there it is the 20th anniversary i i jumped on it and i grabbed it and evidently the dvd sales from 2007 to current according to my research has brought in over just over 10 million dollars wow so dvd thank you it, it definitely helped and we're recording this episode at the tail end of 2016. So next year, in 2017, is the 30th that. anniversary of this film. That blows my mind. Yeah, it makes me feel old. So I'm sure, I'm hoping, that maybe we'll get another release of the film. Maybe a 30th anniversary Blu-ray. That would be extremely nice. Thousand year old dead guys don't get up and start podcasting by themselves. Now, with every film, there are good things and bad things, and I always like to be positive, so we always want to focus on the good things first. The good, the monster makers. This film was created in part by three brilliant individuals, two of them went on and had illustrious careers, while the other, not so much, sadly. The Monster Squad was written by Fred Deckard and his good friend, Shane Black. Now, people might know the name Shane Black today. They should know the name <laughs> Shane Black He's had one today. of the biggest hits of all time. One of, yes, he's, but he's also been involved in a lot of other great yeah. genre films. Just to name a few, Iron Man 3, which he directed. Which he directed. And uh, what, made 400 or plus. He ha- million, I do believe he million. helped on the, the script with that one. I think as he well. did too. Yeah. 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 He was also one of the people that helped write the original Predator film. Yeah. To the point where he was actually in the film. He was uh, the, I can never remember the character's name, but he was the one that had the glasses, the one who was telling the jokes right, right. all the time. That was Shane Black. You know, most recently, Nice Guys. The Nice Guys, yes, Which I have I know, not seen that, a, but I
2: I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I know he directed it. I'd have to look in to see if he if he wrote it or had any kind of hand in writing it, but I know he directed it. Great film. It was a lot of fun.
1: Another great film that he was involved in with Robert Downey Jr. was Kiss Kiss Bang yep, Bang. Yep. One of my personal favorites from the crime noir genre. Well, and you know, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and
2: The Nice Guys, and and even to a certain extent, Iron Man Three. I mm. mean, you know, he does that that buddy. I guess Iron Man 3, not necessarily a buddy cop, but, you know, he does that kind of buddy film right very well. So well, in fact, that he maybe gave us one of the greatest buddy films of all time.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Lethal Weapon. All four of them, even the bad one. Even well, <laughs> I don't think any of them are bad. Some of them are just questionable. Now, here's the thing. People know Shane Black, but who's Fred Deckard? Right. For me... Fred Deckard has directed only four films in his entire career. Out of those four films, I love three of them. His first film was House, mm. starring William Katz, yep. who some people may remember from Greatest American Hero, and also starring George Went from Cheers fame. I love House. House is one of those great, again, great 80s yeah. horror films. Now, Fred Deckard also wrote and directed Night. Of the Creeps. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yet another groundbreaking genre film that basically just shoved all these great little ideas from sci fi and horror and just mushed them all together into this great little film. Then he made Monster Squad, and sadly, Monster Squad almost killed his career because it bombed. Badly. Shouldn't have, because it's a great film, but it bombed. Right. Then he tried to restart his directing career by directing. And this is why I say, out of the four films, I love three of them. Fred Dekker directed RoboCop three.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So you, so <laughs> there's so nothing that, about that, is there? Yeah. So that happened. So he really hasn't done a lot of directing, but he has kept with the writing. Uh, now there was the magical third party who helped create the Monster Squad, and make it the iconic film that it is. Anybody know the name Stan Winston? Ah, the great Stan Winston. Now, one of the interesting things about Stan Winston's involvement in this film is originally the plan was to go to Universal and have them put up the money and they they produce the movie and they'd be able to use all of the original makeup that Jack Pearson designed Mm -hmm. for the, the 30s and 40s films. Sadly, Universal... Passed on it, I guess at the time Universal just didn't really realize what kind of a, a wellspring of a canon that they had that they could have this movie could have been a resurgence of all of those characters two decades have, earlier
2: it could have easily reignited the franchise it could I mean, have if they had you know and I, I know we'll get into the the story more in a little bit, but, you know, if they if that opening scene of the film had just been rewritten a little bit to connect to those old 30s and 40s films, or even there's a loose continuity to those films, yeah. and if, it, if they had connected it in any way to the island at the end of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, there's no reason that this could not have continued the franchise into modern day. Uh, and I think they missed the chance on it, and... You know, now with connected universes, they're trying to do it again, and I I don't know if it'll work the
1: same way. But yeah. it it really could have been something if they had put, ponied up the money at the time. Well, that's that's the interesting thing. It was Stan Winston wanted the challenge. Now that he's been denied, I was like, okay, well I can't copy what was already done. All right, well fine, we'll make it our own, and knocked it out of the park. I mean, these are yeah. some of the best interpretations of the classic stuff without being. The classic look. And yet, at the same time, each one of them has
2: some sort of a nod or in some way pays homage to the original Jack Pierce makeup. It, yes. it, it is certainly Stan Winston's own design, and he made them all very interesting and different and original in his own way. But at the same time, they're instantly recognizable as the Universal Monsters. Mm.
1: Well, uh, another reason why this movie was made was because Fred Deckard and Shane Black both were huge fans of the classic Universal films. But most importantly, their favorite film out of all of those was Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Well, it's it's such a good film. (laughs) The whole reason for making this film was, hey, what if we did an old Universal film, but it was The Little Rascals meet The Monsters? And that's, Great what, idea. That's, that's what the Monster Squad was. That's what the Monster Squad could have been. And had Universal Studios actually been involved, this could have been the start of a franchise. Easily. <laughs> Liam Neeson as Dracula? You're giving me a weird look right now, Jason, from across the table. And rightly so. Maybe, maybe you don't know. But during the casting process for the Monster Squad... A little-known actor at the time named Liam Neeson came in and read for the part of Dracula. I, I, that is something I did not know. I, I did not know that. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, so the story goes, they're doing the casting. Liam Neeson walks in, reads the part of Dracula, and just blows everybody away. Because he's
2: Liam Neeson. He's
1: Liam Neeson. But again, remember, this is Liam Neeson in the, in the late 80s. He's, he hasn't done much yet true but and now still now
2: Excalibur he, had come out so Excalibur he,
1: had come out and I, I think Kroll might have come out I by think Kroll well. was out yeah. at that time yeah okay but he wasn't Qui-Gon Jinn yet he wasn't Ray yet he, he wasn't, wasn't the action star <laughs> he wasn't the guy who lets his daughter get taken all the time <laughs> you know this was just actor Liam Neeson he certainly hadn't become Oscar Schindler yet. yes this is true very much true so he, he reads, he leaves, and they're all like, wow, I mean, why do we need to see anybody else? And then Duncan Rager walks in, who is equally as good, but has some sort of, he's got this weird flair and charm that he brought to the reading that turned everybody's attention away from Liam Neeson and put it straight there on Duncan. And it was the closest thing you were going to get to Bella Lugosi. I, I mean, with a twinge of Christopher Lee With a twinge there. of Christopher Lee. And you know what? Even, even for good good measure, a little dash of Frank Langella. There is a little bit of Langella. A little Langella yeah. in there. Me personally, I think Liam Neeson probably could have pulled off a better Frankenstein's monster than Dracula. And speaking of Frankenstein... Podcast adjourned. The Tooth Fairy is Frankenstein's monster? you giving me that look again, Jason. <laughs> you know, you keep throwing these things out at me. So, Manhunter is the film adaptation of the book Red Dragon. Right. Just With a completely different cast. Uh, it was the only time, except for the prequel movie, that Anthony Hopkins never played Hannibal Lecter. It was actually portrayed by Brian Cox, played Hannibal Lecter in that movie. And your bad guy in the film, the guy running around grabbing people and killing them, was called the Tooth Fairy by the the press until he killed a newspaper man and then they started calling him the Red Dragon. In Manhunter, Tom Noonan played the part of the psychotic killer. He played the Tooth Fairy. And Tom Noonan is the man behind the makeup as Frankenstein's monster in The Monster Squad. Talk about an epic score. Yeah. Now, the music in this film harkens back to the gothic music used in the original 30s and 40s Universal films, but still had enough of the the modern zing to it, to where it, it didn't feel like you were listening to something dated, and the reason for that is because you've got Bruce Brofton doing Who all is the composing,
2: just an
1: amazing composer. yes, has composed some of the greatest scores. Too many to actually really list, but I mean some of the some of the best. Silverado, anybody? Silverado. Uh, once
2: again, we mentioned Tombstone.
1: Tombstone. Yes. Um,
2: you know, Young Sherlock Holmes, Harry and the Hendersons. Her- oh. Uh, most yes. recently he did uh, that, uh, I think, what was it, Bill Paxton, that History Channel miniseries, Texas Rising. Yes. Uh, does a lot of Western music, I guess, ironically. Actually,
1: Fred Deckard was watching Silverado and oh. was like, that's that's what I want, that type of score. Deckard was like, Silverado has this Western score, but it doesn't feel like it's a pigeonholed Western theme. And he was like, that's what I want for my my monster movie. I want somebody who can give me dark and gothic without having to be. You definitely get that type of a score from Bruce Brofton. Well, yeah, he's just an amazing composer. Creatures stole my podcast. A monstrous crawl and the classic feel. I love the way this movie starts. Yeah. It starts with not necessarily a complete ripoff of Star Wars, the Star Wars crawl. We all know the crawl. But it has some text that slowly crawls up the screen and gives you the basic gist of what's about to happen. And takes itself very seriously. Very seriously. Until. (laughs) (laughs) Until the final words, they blew it. Which then tells you that this is going to be a film that takes itself seriously, but not too seriously. Takes itself seriously while that tongue is firmly planted in the cheek. Yes, very much so. And then we open to Dracula's Castle in Transylvania, and it looks and feels just like every single time we've traveled to Dracula's Castle in Transylvania in all the older films. It has this ability to make you feel like wow, I'm watching one of those Universal films in color.
2: Yeah. Yeah, again, much like Stan Winston's makeup, it, it immediately captures the feel of the original films while updating it, but but not to the point where you're so alienated that you don't know where you're at. Right. It almost does feel like you're revisiting somewhere that you've been
1: before, because mm. in a sense, you kind of are. Now, I talked about it briefly earlier. In one of the original drafts of the script, this opening sequence, Shane Black was so ambitious that Van Helsing and his army was supposed to be flying in on Zeppelins with machine guns, facing off against a horde of Dracula's brides. Well, that's a way to open a movie. That's a way to open a movie. And and had they had that twenty million that you uh, <laughs> that the, that you talked about, the, that their budget should have been, it should have been twenty million. They probably could have gotten away with that. Unfortunately, we get. A, a was handful of like twelve. We maybe? get like twelve villagers <laughs> and a couple and of pitchforks. One bride sucking on a possum. <laughs>
2: and they were walking up like a a lonely road. Yes, that a very looked lonely road. Like it road. was digitally composited in with a background or with a matte painting.
1: Sean and Patrick. A dynamic duo. Now we're thrust into modern day, well, modern day eighties. But we are thrust into another horrifying situation. We leave a dark castle in Transylvania 100 years prior, and now we are in a school. Very spooky. I don't know about you, but I remember dreading school. School would have been great had it not been for all the classes in between the, the <laughs> well, fun
2: stuff. And it isn't just school that we're brought into, it's after school. It's after school, it's still the principal's in the office. class. Yeah
1: we're being berated for drawing while we should be uh, paying attention to science and this scene gives you the dynamic between your two main characters th- th- from the squad. Sean and Patrick are your two main characters cuz Sean the leader, but you got to have that that wise cracking sidekick. And that's Patrick. Even though that there's there's a large group of characters in the squad, it's these two that are the the Batman and Robin, the Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. Actually more of a Han Solo and Chewbacca kind of a, a duo pair. The leader and the general. I the mean, leader and the general. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the dynamic of Sean and Patrick. And this scene, this scene actually has one of, and this this is an extremely quotable movie, but this scene has one of the many great lines of this film. And it's where their principal is chastising them, and he basically says Science is real, monsters are not.
2: Uh, it also has, uh, again, from the, the principal, it has that great line where he says, well, guys, I guess I'm just a
1: big kid because I think science is cool, <laughs> man. I, I dig, dig it. it. <laughs> oh, yes, when adults try to be hip to impress children. The podcast has NARS. Fat Kid, the heart of the squad. Now today, I don't think anybody can get away with uh, making a film and having one of their kid characters be called Fat Kid the entire movie without some parental group I say, or parent psychiatrist yeah. or anything like that uh, basically calling for, oh, well, this is too insensitive. You can't, You can't have this. Personally speaking, there's a lot of things in this film that I don't think could be gotten away with if it was made today. I agree. Which a sign of the times, I guess. But uh, uh, again, that's a, a debate for another day. But his name is Horace, but Fat Kid, and he responds to Fat Kid. And he, th- he responds to Fat. Well, you know, like what? it's his nickname, and he almost
2: with with the guys in the squad in the Monster Squad. To him, when they refer to him as Fat Kid, to Horace, it's almost a badge of honor. Right. That's his. That's his nickname. That's what he's called. He, he doesn't take offense to it until it's the bullies at school that use it. Uh, that's you, where he, you don't get to call me that because yeah, you're not my friend. You're not my friend, right? You know, which is kind of, I don't know. I, I guess again, I guess parental groups will come down on it either way. But I think that that's kind of cool. I think that's kind of neat. Not not that he's called fat kid, but that that he has that rapport with with his group of friends.
1: Well, you and I met each other in our our very early twenties, so we did not know each other during adolescence, but. Uh, I was fat kid. I, I was the fat kid. I was fat kid growing up. And let me tell you, when it comes to a nickname like that, you either own it or it tortures you for, the ro- for your whole life. Mm-hmm. And luckily, the 80s gave a little bit of leeway to us uh, stouter fellows because you've got, you've got fat kid in Monster Squad. You've got Chunk in the goonies. Yep. And even though Chunk was played for laughs mostly, not all the times, but mostly in the goonies, Fat Kid isn't played for laughs in this movie. He he has actually some of the best lines. Mm-hmm. He's the one character that kind of is like guys, we no, we shouldn't be doing this. Let's No, he's the voice of reason. He is the voice of reason. That's why I call him the heart of the squad. Sadly, I did not have a Rudy when I was growing up. Is Rudy too cool for this club?
2: <laughs>
1: Is Rudy too old for middle school? <laughs> oh no, he's in junior high. Well, they actually oh. say that in they they say that in dialogue. He's in junior high. So he's a few years older than than they. Sean. Are. He Patrick, just always, he and, just always fact, to yeah. me
2: looked like he was much older. He looked like he was a, a high school kid.
1: But the funny thing about it is, is that he looks younger than Patrick's sister. He does. They did a good who job. Looks, he, looks who looks like, like she's she a college, be in college. college. <laughs> yeah.
2: Who she probably was. <laughs> she probably was twenty five. Who
1: knows? I mean, you know. And another thing: why would somebody that age want to hang out with a bunch of little kids? You know what I think. And it's a, it's a very psychological thing. I think I think Rudy Rudy wanted to belong to something. And he couldn't find it with people his own age. People older than him weren't giving him the respect that he probably deserved. So where do you look for it? People just a little bit younger. And you know what? Rudy found a place where he belonged. He belonged with the squad.
2: Told you. Only one way to kill a podcast.
1: Scary German guy. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Scary German guy. That's all you have to say. And I, I don't think they ever give him a name. Even he after, doesn't in the
2: credits. He is he's listed, he is listed scary scary as scary guy? German guy. Yeah. An actor that, that worked in probably hundreds of different projects and was seen constantly in one of
1: his later films is listed as scary German guy. <laughs> scary German guy. And well, But think about it. And this is probably the brilliance where Fred Deckard and Shane Black, in their writing process, shows how connected or disconnected, I should say, from their age group. Because when you think about it, that's on the nose. He's a scary German guy. That's what kids do. Yep. You're not going to call fat kid blubber butt. He's fat kid. Because it's simple. It's on the nose. This movie proves that. Calling, calling it like you see it, that's what kids do. <laughs> the clubhouse. Did you have a clubhouse? Did you ever build a clubhouse? I did. I did. It was not as sturdy as their clubhouse. Didn't look as cool as their clubhouse. It was a three-story, well, I'll call it what it was. It was a three-story shit shack in the tree in the back of my house.
2: Oh, your was in a tree, though.
0: Mine wasn't was, a tree.
2: Mine was just, you know, I grew up in the city of St. Louis, South City area. So um, mine was just junk that was found in the alley mm. that was dragged back into our backyard and then built in the, the far back of the backyard by the basketball net that was never used. Hmm. And it was literally just junk hammered together. I mean, it, it looked like it was, you know... Lifted right out of the junkyard in right. in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 or something. Uh,
1: I grew up as a child in South County, St. Louis, so not too far from your neck of the woods, still suburban, and we did the exact same thing. We grabbed a bunch of junk. We just got industrious and climbed a tree with it. I, I If we sadly, had one, I probably would have too. Sadly, and I, uh, luckily I was inside the house playing Nintendo. Can't remember what game, but I was playing Nintendo. I remember when... When I heard a terrible sound, there arose such a clatter <laughs> from outside. The top tier of the shit shack came a-tumbling down and a handful of my friends who who were hanging out in there. Luckily enough, we had ropes and there was some swinging and t- some Tarzan action. Nobody was hurt, but uh, <laughs> the clubhouse came a-tumbling down. And sadly, we were we were so put out, we never rebuilt.
2: Wow. But certainly, either way, nowhere near as cool as the clubhouse in Monster Squad. That clubhouse, hu- probably the ultimate clubhouse. It of is all the
1: time. ultimate clubhouse. I mean, it's it, the structure is just big enough to fit everybody. The walls are lined with some great movie posters. It's and in magazine a tree. It's in you a tree. You had to climb
2: up to get it. It, had, it almost have almost split-level in a sense. Yes, yes, very um, much so. As much as,
1: you know, that can be. And here we, we're introduced to our two final members of the squad, Eugene and his dog Pete, who, who <laughs> just does not, who doesn't love a cute little hound dog? Oh, and I, love, uh, I love the line, and
2: I and I can't recall if it happens in this scene or later, where somebody even says, how does that dog get up here?
1: Uh, yes, Rudy says that once they become the, the, squad, the squad later right. on. But yeah, that's a very good question, because how, I don't that, see a pulley system no, or anything no, like no. that. How does that dog get in that treehouse? One house? would think someone would, would probably, Eugene throws Pete into like a sack. Maybe, maybe and, he comes up and, in his book bag. Yeah, something like that. But then we're also introduced to one of the aspects of the little rascals where they actually have a sign on the door leading into the clubhouse. No girls allowed. Very, very similar to the little rascals with their he man woman hater club. Mm -hmm. So again, a a nice little throwback to Fred Deckard's original vision of wanting to do little rascals meet the universal monsters. Give me the podcast, you bitch. (laughs) Dracula drives a kick-ass hearse. Now here on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network, there is a show, a program, called Two Guys Talking Cars, where Mike Wilkerson and his co-host, Ron Reiling, talk about, you guessed it, cars, vehicles, of all shapes and sizes. And one of the cool things about it is, is that the show delves into vehicles in television, and movie history. I, I, I know for a fact that you and I could probably list ten vehicles from our favorite movies or TV shows absolutely. that just absolutely kick ass. This right here is definitely one of them. Dracula's Ghost Hearse. Yep. It's this deep black that just looks like it's part of the shadows with this silver skull hood ornament, piercing dead eyes, <laughs> It's creepy when it comes straight at you, yep. and it's not utilized, in my in my opinion, it's not utilized enough in this movie, but when you really think about it, why would Dracula be driving a car? Wolfman can't drive a car, but Dracula can drive a car. Dracula can drive a car. I'll go and with that. And the car that he drives is a kick-ass black hearse. <laughs> Groundhog's Day Part 12.
2: And we ain't talking about the Bill Murray film.
1: That would be really freaky, though. Bill Murray in a horror movie where he runs around killing people with an axe? I'd watch it. I'd watch it, but that's not what we're talking about. They have not made 11 sequels to the film Groundhog's Day. This is a film that exists in this universe where there's evidently been 11 sequels, very similar to the Friday the 13th franchise. This is Deckard and Black's way of poking fun at the horror genre of the 80s i
2: was going to say specifically of that that era you know because the the monster squad itself acts so much as a love letter to the universal monsters whether they got the okay from universal or not you know you can obviously tell the affection that they have for Mm. those films and i i don't know i i don't want to be presumptuous enough to say that they disliked the slasher films of the 80s but they certainly didn't hold them in the same regard. Mm, yes. And I think this this scene is very telling of that.
1: Not to mention the fact it gives us a, uh, an opportunity to watch Sean have a conversation with his father, Dell, who is a police officer, father and son having a conversation, which it's a conversation about a stupid movie, which is really hiding the fact that they want to talk about the fact that the family is a little bit dysfunctional. The mother and the father are not are not on good terms. No, they are. They are working on their marriage.
2: Well, and, it and seems... one can even argue that only one side of them is exactly, working, on exactly. it, which is why
1: they're having the problems that they're having. So again, this is yet another scene that gives you the realism. The the movie, which can be goofy at times, the fact that it has these moments of reality hammer home how these characters aren't just characters but real human beings in the viewer's mind it makes you want to care for them even more 2000 year old dead guys don't get up and start podcasting by themselves i'm a werewolf and 2000 year old dead guys do not get up and walk away by themselves this is our first example in the film that besides the fact we got dracula driving around town We're starting to see more monsters arrive. We get our first kill, our first real legitimate kill. There was a couple of people that got sucked into limbo in the first part of the movie, but we didn't see anybody get like murdered. Well, we see it here. Disturbed stranger turns into Wolfman and kills the coroner. All right. Well, guess what? Strap in, boys, (laughs) because it's going to be a bumpy night.
2: And I'll tell you, the best thing about that whole sequence is, yeah, it gives us our first taste. But it's not like it just gives us that taste. And it's not like it just ramps up the the energy and the action to that degree. Because it's intercut mm-hmm. with our second taste. And so this entire sequence is intercut
1: with the introduction of yet another monster. The mummy evidently... Yeah, it's a nice night. Gonna take a little stroll sure, in the moonlight. why
2: not? You know, maybe it was a slow night at the museum. Maybe nobody was really looking at stuff. He you didn't know, get out and
1: see some Just, and, just the mummy. I mean, we don't get any kind of real specifics on, no, on what mummy he is. It isn't is, any but,
2: kind of a reference to Imhotep, or, or Chorus as uh, as oh, yes. ended up coming later in the Universal series. You know, it's none, none of them. It's, it's just a mummified person. But uh, you know the other interesting thing about it is is that this this happens about twenty minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. It, it, so you know the movie wastes no time. Other than other than Dracula, who is introduced right off the bat, and that's obvious because he's the movie's antagonist, right? Vampire or otherwise, he's he's the antagonist. You got to introduce him right away. But yeah, so really the the mummy even even almost before the werewolf, who uh, you know you see him in his human form before you see the mummy screaming that he's a werewolf. But really, the mummy's the first monster you see. You see him briefly as he's walking down the road. Taking a stroll. Just taking a stroll late night. But yeah, 20 minutes into the movie, man, they waste no time. They jump right in.
1: (laughs) The gang's all here. You're completely right, Jason. They waste no time. Once we get into modern day and we get through introducing all of our kid characters our protagonists that will make up the monster squad, we just dive straight into getting all of the monsters that we can shown as quickly as we can. And that not necessarily is a good or bad thing, because some monsters kind of get the shaft and they don't get enough screen time. But we'll get to that later. This is the scene, though, where we have finally all of our monsters for this movie in one place. The Wolfman, the Mummy... They have shown up to Dracula's location, Dracula is standing there, maybe it's a lake, maybe it's a river, I don't know. But it's where the crate from the World War II bomber that had stenciled on the side Frankenstein dropped down into. And guess who pulls it up? Out of the water. It's the Gill Man. The creature from the no this wasn't the black Lagoon, but it's the creature from the black lagoon, essentially
2: I mean, uh, d- yeah. basically, yes, and I might add, probably, in my opinion,
1: the, the coolest, coolest looking coolest oh creature absolutely abso, lo- the coolest I've ever seen, yeah, sadly, and and that's the thing we haven't really had anything creature of the black Lagoon related since this movie, yeah, certainly not on that level, yeah, and this is some of some of the best looking monster makeup and suits i've ever seen why have we not tried to do something with this character yeah i mean c- c- i'm seriously come on hollywood why come on universal, get off your ass universal you're
2: rebooting the mummy and you're rebooting Van everything Helsing else and you know all the other universal give monsters. us, give us some, a kick-ass give us
1: and that's the thing the creature tosses the crate okay so we open the crate oh look it's a corpse a giant freaking corpse it's frankenstein's monster It's cloudy night, storm clouds are rolling in, let's bring them back to life. All you need is a cane. And it's almost reminiscent of the cane used in the original Wolfman. It's very reminiscent. Very reminiscent of that that silver-headed cane that was in the shape of a wolf. Very. And and when he pulls the ears off of
2: the, the wolf to connect to the bolts... On Frankenstein, on the on the Frankenstein monster's temples, on his temples, it's it's very similar. The way that they connect and the electricity that runs between them, even just at the briefest touch, is also very similar to the way Dracula's ring connects to the Frankenstein monster's bolts on his neck in Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. It's that same kind of we can revive with that, and then give the full electricity and really bring him back. Right. Yeah, there's a lot that they're throwing in this one scene for for not just the story of the film itself, but for fans of the, the original Classic franchise. stuff, yeah.
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Podcast adjourned. The candle keeps the monsters away. Now, one would think that this is a throwaway scene, a scene between a mother and her daughter Really, just to give a little bit more backstory on the dysfunctional family. But it's not. There's deeper meaning here in this scene than what I thought of it when I was a child. As a child, this would be something that I would have fast-forwarded through. I don't care about Phoebe and her talking to her mom. I don't care about the storm has knocked all the power out and you got to light a candle. I don't care about this stuff. As a child, this doesn't interest me. As an adult, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, this grabs my attention now because very much like the Dell and Sean conversation earlier in the film, Phoebe and her mom having this conversation. This is the. Female equivalent, and it may sound sexist of me saying it that way, but this is the female equivalent of the Groundhog Day, Groundhog's Day Part 12 conversation that Sean and his dad had earlier. Genders talk differently to each other. That's how it is. But the subtext in this scene is the parent telling the child that everything is going to be okay because of A, but later on we discover that B... Exists, which means, A, doesn't frickin' matter anymore. And we'll get to that later on in the podcast. (laughs) Using parents arguing as the backdrop for a horrific discovery. It's not on camera for long, but after the camera pulls away from it, you still hear it in the background. Yeah, it goes throughout
2: the whole scene. Whole
1: scene. This has been touched on in in plenty of films that (sighs) parents, sometimes they don't get this, that their fighting does affect the child. They don't think that it does. Well, they're asleep, no big deal. No, the kids are never asleep. Kids aren't stupid. They're going to hear this stuff. And I like the fact that the children in this film are not played stupid. Right. The fact that Sean is listening to his parents argue and the fact that this is in the background as he's trying to figure out why this message that his mother has written on the dry erase board uh, about the diary and the possibility of, of money from this strange, mysterious Mr. Alucard. Hmm, why does this bug me? Why does this bug me? And anybody who is a fan of the classic stuff you're automatically going, it's Dracula backwards. It's Dracula backwards. But you have to sit there because you can't have Sean just go automatically. It's Dracula backwards because we live in a world that is trying to take itself seriously. That that the reality is that these monsters actually do exist, and evidently the books and everything else that was based off of them were based off of facts, loose facts like like legends and and fairy tales and things like that. Where, where everything start, kind of starts off with a little bit of a grain of truth and then just exaggerated to tell a story. And it's a great scene. And the fact that you've got parents arguing in the background hammers home the horror of it all. Real-life horror mixed with movie horror.
2: Well, and I think that's really what the scene is, is all about there. You know, and it's, it's drawing that parallel and almost, uh, in a sense metaphorically saying, you know, this is it. This is this is the end of your childhood, Sean. This is, you know, you're at a point where you're about to hit your teenage years. You're about to start growing up and changing. Mm-hmm. Here is a mythical monster, a fictional monster, who, you know, for purposes of the story is real, but typically a fictional monster. While this almost monstrous thing is happening in the other room to two good people Mm -hmm. and to his family more importantly. And it's you know it's it's very much a this is your last this is your last go. Here we go. This is your last adventure as a kid and after this it's time to grow up. And I, I don't know if it was intentional on Decker and Black's part to throw that in there, if that's what that scene was intentionally going for, but that's certainly how it reads.
1: Creature stole my podcast. A cameo from a different monster. I knew you were going to bring this one up. There's a scene in the film in which Eugene wakes up his father because there's monsters in his room. More specifically, there is a monster in his closet. So his dad comes in, scares all the imaginary monsters away. And yes, we get this nice little scene of the mummy in Eugene's closet. What people probably don't notice is that sitting on a shelf... There was already a monster there. There was a my pet monster. Now that I do really think about it, it may actually be because of the Monster Squad that I became so obsessed with owning one of those toys, Hmm. which I still own today. Yeah, Harry still exists. He sits down in the uh, my basement slash office. Right next to the comic collection, and uh, just uh, oversees everything—the comings and goings. Protects, yeah, protects. He observes and uh, observes and reports back any suspicious activity. But yeah, this movie, especially the bedrooms of the kids, but this movie in general, the clothing and everything else—it just—it this is so eighties. Yeah, yeah, it, more,
2: no more telling than in that scene. I mean, when you've got. Eugene wearing Robotech pajamas (laughs) and you know, there's a a poster on the wall for Punisher, which I think is, is, a poster, if, I, if I'm correct, of one of the covers of one of the early issues, I yeah. want to say. He's also
1: got an amazing Spider-Man poster amazing up on spider. his There's wall. a Legion of Superheroes poster, yeah. which is
2: very big in the 80s, yeah. um, you know, in, in comics. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of... And then, of course, the My Pet Monster and other little toys and things that you can see if you freeze frame it. And it's just... There's a lot going on in that room, almost similar to the the kid's room in Poltergeist. Very when you, yes. When you've got all the, the Star Wars and E.T. and other Spielberg and Lucas stuff filling that room, mm-hmm. here you've got all the stuff that's not Lucasfilm related <laughs> or Spielberg related. But it's it's very telling of the of the year.
1: What's a squad? I love this scene. Because this this is our this is the end of act one, our push into act two. But more importantly, the kids are our only hope. Yep. That was a that was a big theme in the 80s when you think about it. I mean, think of Goonies. Think of Explorers. Think of the Monster Squad. E.T. Think of E.T. It's the parents don't understand. They're not going to believe us. So we have to take it upon ourselves to solve the problem and save the day. It's again, I think it's an extension
2: of that other scene of that moment of time to grow up. Hmm. And in this sense, it's, Okay, it's we have to step up and take the responsibility you know upon ourselves to fix the problem. sometimes the problem is finding one eyed Willie's buried treasure so your family doesn't have to move sometimes the problem is getting e t home in this case, the problem is stopping Dracula and the forces of evil, but either way, it's still that moment of we are not understood and you know we are almost outcasts in yeah. a sense and it's time for us to band together and take responsibility uh, upon ourselves and and take that next step which i think is is you know a major theme for all these films from the 80s even even stuff as far removed as back to the future it's it's such a thick theme through the
1: decade the podcast has nars dracula since Frankenstein's monster to kill the kids. This is a movie that really doesn't know what it wants to call itself. But when you have kids, you don't want to necessarily think about putting the children into peril in real life. Now, movies, on the other hand, well, you don't got a movie unless your kids are in peril. Again, we've, we, we've talked about a lot of other films from the 80s. I'm going to bring it up again. Goonies. The Goonies go searching for One-Eyed Willie's treasure. But who's on their tail? The Fatellis, who are murderers. Yep. Yep. Murderer, robber, gangsters, bad, bad people. There is a dead body, a corpse, in a freezer.
2: Well, I mean, you know, it's only um, a year or so off from Monster Squad, but Michael, Sam have to team up with the Frog Brothers and the Lost Boys and deal with (laughs) almost sociopathic, psychotic, murdering vampires. Yeah. Who clearly have no qualms with not just being vampires and doing what vampires do, but doing it brutally. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's in all these films at that time, and so even a film as family-friendly as Monster Squad can be, of course it's going to be there. It's got to be there.
1: How better, how better of a way of making sure that there are no questions whether or not you're going, you're supposed to like or dislike Dracula, when he sends his quote unquote enforcer off to kill the little kids, and not only that, but when Frank does go off to find the kids, we get yet another nod to the original 1931 Frankenstein film where Phoebe is there by the water. Playing with flowers, and then Frankenstein walks up, and we all know from the film that usually doesn't work out very well for little girls. Well, what I find so interesting
2: about putting that scene in there, and and I don't know the timeline, so if if anyone out there knows the timeline of this and you know wishes to share, please do. That scene when that when that film originally came out in 1931 was so shocking to audiences that it was immediately pulled. It was pulled from the film, and it was cut out of all prints that were sent out to theaters nationwide. So from that point on, it didn't exist. And there was a long time where people knew, they, they saw pictures, they saw stills, but for a long time there, and that in the scene film, the narrative—the
1: narrative is still there. It's still you there. Know you that know that Frankenstein what happened. did do something yeah. to a girl. You don't see it. You don't it, see though. it. Right.
2: They, that scene was cut. So, so it's still the story's still told correctly. But you just didn't see it. It was too horrific, too visually graphic for 1931, and it didn't exist for a very long time. Right. And I don't remember when this was, but I remember when I was younger. I remember my dad buying. I think it was a VHS copy of. The, the original Frankenstein with Boris Karloff. And I remember him being very excited because a few years prior, they found an inta- a fully intact print Ooh. that had that scene, and this video was being released with the restored scene nice. of the little girl. Now, 25 some odd years later, whatever it has been, like I said, I don't know the time frame there, now it's a scene that everybody knows. It's on all the DVDs right. that have been released, and we've seen it now 100,000 times. But I don't know if that film had been found prior to 1987. I don't know if maybe the film had been found after, because it's it's interesting that they chose that scene did they create that scene and choose that moment with frankenstein's monster and phoebe because at that time we had not seen that scene because it had not been found yet and maybe it was their way of saying here we'll give it to you this way was it was it just something that's so iconic from the original story that they included I, i i very much wonder what the timeline was on yeah. finding that scene and how it pertains to them, if it pertains even to putting that scene in the film. And
1: if it, if it doesn't pertain, it at least pertains to, again, the fans of the original films knowing that Frankenstein has just come upon a little girl. Anybody that remembers that original film is now going to immediately go, oh shit, what did he do to Phoebe? Right. <laughs> Scary German guys bitching. <laughs> Again, there are a lot of great quotable lines in this film, but what's the point of introducing a character when all he is is just a face in the window and he has a really interesting name? Oh, that's right. We have this book, and it's written in German. Who do we know that's German? Ah, the scary, scary German guy. guy. And this scene works out great because it turns out that scary German guy isn't so scary, and he's absolutely happy to help the kids, and we get an adult character... That does not treat the children like their children, yep talks to them like they're adults, gives them the information that they asked for, doesn't necessarily believe everything that he's reading in this book, but is willing to give them the benefit of the doubt to at least humor them and not belittle their their uh their thinking and This is where we learn about the amulet that hold the balance of good and evil. And we learn about limbo and, more importantly, yet another very adult theme. At the end of this scene, we learn that evidently scary German guy is a Holocaust survivor. In some manner. We, we don't know how. We don't know how. We don't
2: know what is, you know, what happened to him. We don't get his backstory other than that one moment when... I think it's Fat Kid, is yes. who says, you know, boy, you sure do know a lot about monsters. And he and says, now, now that, that you, you mention, mention it, it perhaps, perhaps I do. I do. And the camera pans down to his arm, and you see the Holocaust tattoo, uh, the number, the serial number tattooed on his arm. Now, when I was a kid, I remember my dad, and I don't know if this was the first time I saw it or much later, but I remember him pointing that out. And he goes, wow, do you see that? And I didn't. I was too young. I didn't know. and mm. I was like, what Very are you similar to about?
1: me, I, I asked my mother, and she told me about it. And, and I was like, told, I, yep, "I don't." Yep, know. he told me too. And I was like, "Oh, well, that's something I learned in history class as a child. You can't think of, you know, millions and millions of people being. You can't process genocide, right? As an eight-year-old child, but then as you grow up and you learn certain things, you are able to process stuff like that. And the fact that Deckard and Black were able to slide in. Again, real monsters, mm-hmm. real horror in this family horror, comedy, goulash kind of a movie. <laughs> it just goes to show how uh, how great this movie is on so many different levels.
2: Told you, only one way to kill a podcast.
1: Monsters have range. Uh, now that uh, Phoebe has joined the club because she has brought Frankenstein into the squad, the, the kids are having a nice little uh, powwow with Frank and trying to decide uh, their next move. Rudy hands Frankenstein's monster a mask of Frankenstein's monster. A Halloween mask. And Frankenstein actually gets upset at... The visage that he sees before him, and becomes emotional, almost childlike emotional, about not wanting to be perceived as scary, and it it's one of those early scenes where it starts tugging on your heartstrings a little bit. Where it comes to 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 Frank,
2: I, I think it you know very much ties in with the idea of you know what we were talking about before about these being outcasts these characters being outcasts and Mm. and not being accepted for what they really want to be accepted for you know being being looked upon as children and by the adults treated as children right and when he looks at that it's almost him looking at that and not wanting to be a monster and realizing that's what people take him for and it and it kind of draws a little bit of a parallel i think and i think that's kind of the point right. of the scene it, it whether or not it needed to be there because it had already been hammered home five times over yeah. in the film prior to that i don't know that that could be debatable but i i do like the scene and i you know and i love the way that that tom noonan delivers the line when he looks at the mask and he and he says It's scary. And he, you know, he he points to his face, I think, and he even says, I'm basically saying I'm scary. Um, To this day, whenever I say the word scary, I say it like him.
1: (laughs) Scary. Scary. And you and I have talked in the past about how humanizing a monster, well, basically takes the monster away. When you're talking about slashers and larger-than-life creatures, you're... Jason, your Michael, your Freddy, characters like that, humanizing them seems to depower them and they're not scary in the way that they're meant to be. This is the complete opposite. This is an example of humanizing the monster and the character benefiting from that.
2: Well, and I think, you know, not to not to dive too much into philosophy of mary shelley's original story or anything while we're talking about the monster squad but i think a lot of it has to do with that original story and the fact that he is not the monster right victor frankenstein is the monster mm. humanizing that character is going the wrong way i think humanizing the monster the creature as he's referred to in in most films in the book i think that's almost necessary to see how monstrous it is that he was created to be that way. So he's one of the few monsters that I don't have a problem with them humanizing, especially in a scene like this, surrounded by kids who all feel the same pain on some other level. This is one that I, I very much am okay with. Yeah,
1: agreed. Montage! It's an 80s movie. Gotta have a montage. You gotta have a montage. And this is a montage of well, <laughs> it's supposed to be the montage. Oh, we're preparing for battle, but really, it's a montage of Rudy just stealing shit <laughs> and making stuff while the other kids just run around doing kid stuff, doing crafts and hobbies. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> again, it writing shows a letter that, with a
2: crayon and
1: yeah. yes, mo- army people, monsters are here, come quickly. I think the montage only really works. Because you have that, that really great eighties pop song that, that what what are the rocket rock until you, you drop. drop or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. <laughs> dance until your heart stops. Yeah, I mean just you got this great eighties music going to it, and you really don't care what's happening during this montage. You just know that you want to get up and dance with the rest of the kids. Yeah. Give me the podcast, you bitch. <laughs> the Wolfman phone booth transformation now I, I i don't mean that the wolfman turns into a phone booth <laughs> i don't want people that to think be, that, that that that's that impressive would
2: be interesting. yeah that would be something
1: no i'm talking about the scene in which the wolfman begins to transform while he's in a phone booth talking to sean's dad Dell. finally getting another adult in on the plot And warning them, and warning them, yeah, because you know he's going to kill your son. The man
2: himself is not the monster. No, he's very much against the monsters. In fact, yes, I love that scene. You know, it's obviously not his transformation in that booth is is nowhere near the uh, the American Werewolf in London transformation, and probably not even anywhere near any of the transformations in the first Howling.
1: Or, but it's still a great transformation. But it has parts and bits from all of those it does it has the nice time-lapse stuff from the original wolfman film paying homage to
2: that paying homage to
1: that but then you still get the the visceral transformation the showing how painful it is to become a monster you you even get that 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 hair growing sound that we talked about when we talked about an american werewolf in london yeah you get that the bones popping, the hair growing, the skin being pulled, and it's really quick like it, it, unlike the american uh, an American werewolf in London where that scene took a good four minutes oh yeah at
2: least yeah
1: maybe th- three, three and a half minutes, this one is super quick. it's like no, no, we're not we're not screwing around here. He's gonna be the wolf man now,
2: but at the same time, and again, this is because of American werewolf in London, a new precedent had been set for werewolf transformations. And while they were able to do some of the similar superimposed transformation tricks that Lon Chaney Jr.'s film back in, what is it, 41, 42, something like that, while they were able to incorporate some of that in there to pay homage to the fact that this is kind of supposed to be Lawrence Talbot, you can't go back. Right. Well, you know, it's, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, basically. Once that door's been opened, you got to go that route. And so they do a nice job of mixing the two, of honoring the original but still keeping it modern by the standards of which it came out.
1: Yeah. Blackmailing a virgin. Got to love it, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Here's one of those adult themes in a quote-unquote kids movie. I mean, again, yeah. again I don't want to call this a kids movie because it's not a kids movie, but it's also not an adult movie either. Right. It's got themes for both demographics. And here is where we're uh, tap dancing on that puberty line. We have the majority of our cast is in their very early teens, uh, except for Rudy. Rudy is the only one who's actually full-blown in puberty. So we've got this, the, just this hint of older women are sexual objects. Just a hint. We don't get a lot of it. Just a hint. But most of that is focused on Patrick's sister, who is evidently a, uh, well, she's very friendly. <laughs> That being said, this is, a, this, this is a very adult theme because you're essentially blackmailing a person, which is illegal. And then that's uh, another level to this whole scene because
2: other than briefly when Scary German Guy is decrypting the book for them and briefly at the beginning, there's really not a lot of talk about a virgin. Until this point, we, mm-hmm. we need to get a virgin, is, is the idea to read the journal, the diary. I don't know about you, but I saw this, as I said, on video or on HBO, one of the two. So I was probably 9 or 10, something like that, something like that yeah. when, when I saw the film for the first time. At 9 or 10, I didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Yep. I had to look at my parents and say, what's a virgin? I don't know what that means. And I don't remember how they explained it to me. I'm not sure I, how I, got I, explained, I don't remember that conversation with it. my
1: mother either. But uh, I'm sure that it came up eventually. Well, actually, it... I think I think I found out through other friends who oh, watched okay. it. It's like it's like we're watching it, and like somebody go, "You know what a virgin is, right?" And I'm like, "Yeah." Just because I know, what do you think it is? <laughs> yeah. It was somebody who hasn't had sex, yet. and I'm like, "What?" <laughs>
2: but that's like, again, that's a pretty crazy topic to be throwing in there amidst this blackmailing scene and then we're throwing in all this talk about a virgin and this is supposed to be again a movie at, at the very least about kids
1: if not yeah, for kids yeah yeah two thousand year old dead guys don't get up and start podcasting by themselves a disastrous first mission we've got half of our gang Heading out to 666 Shadowbrook Road. And if that's not more on the head, (laughs) I don't know what... I mean, what are the 1313 Mockingbird Lane for the (laughs) Munsters? We are hammering home the fact that this is a love letter to classic horror movies. Not necessarily the movies of the decade, but the classic horror movies. Absolutely love it. I love it. I, 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 I laugh at this. Because it's so simple. There's so many simple things about this film. But here we are at Shadowbrook Road at the mansion. And Frankenstein's down. Wolfman, Dracula, and his brides are surrounding our heroes. And what do we got to do?
2: There's only one thing to
1: do. Kick him in the nards. Wolfman doesn't have nards. Wolfman's Wolfman's got got nards. Probably the most quoted line from the movie. Yes. After that film, testicles were synonymous with nards. Nards for like the next at least five years of my life. If I was talking about dangly things between my legs, I'm talking about about Nards. nards. Yep. But yes, we get that great classic line. But then we also get something that, again, as I was saying before, the simplicity of this movie sometimes. Dracula is about to kill Sean, who has grabbed the amulet. And the, 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 oh, the amulet in his hand, and, and Dracula's going to kill Sean. How do we get away from Dracula? Fat kid's got some pizza. And guess what? Fat kid likes garlic on his pizza. Which, again, probably something that would
2: not get, be gotten away with today. You know, the fat kid always has
0: food
1: always on has him. Always has food on him. By, I mean,
2: <laughs> But again, from a kid's point of view, you know, and and it makes complete sense. And a lot of this movie is from the eyes of a kid. Right. Because from a kid's point of view, sure, the fat kid in school, yeah, well, he's fat, so he always eats, right? I mean, that's a kid's mentality.
1: Yeah. Gotta keep that blood sugar
2: up. (laughs) So yeah, so you know, it makes sense on that level, but there's no way they'd get away with that today.
1: (laughs) Mummy unwrapped. Scary German guy, rides to the rescue. So we have all of our main protagonist characters, minus Sean's dad, in one place. And they're all decided, okay, well, where are we going to conduct this wacky German ritual? Let's go to town. Let's do it at church. Monsters hate religious stuff, evidently. We're on the move. But out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere, the mummy strikes. While they're moving, while they're moving, I mean, <laughs> like, the mummy evidently has got some agility. He's like a giant jungle cat that you don't expect because he moves so slow, dragging that leg. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition, and no <laughs> one expects the mummy, <laughs> because the mummy who had been hobbling for the majority of the film, anytime you saw him, does this kung fu fly ninja. Mummy. It's a, it's a, yeah. All of a sudden, we're in a ninja movie, and the mummy jumps onto the back of scary German guy's jeep. But he's not ninja enough to climb into the no 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 he's he's just
2: ninja just ninja enough to grab to (laughs) grab onto
1: it but not ninja enough to actually get all the way in (sighs) poor bummy this guy gets unspooled like like a ball of yarn and all that we have left is a skeleton Not even a skull, just the the top top of a skull. skull.
2: Top of a skull. It's very much like suddenly at this point in time, at this moment, the movie suddenly goes into Tom and Jerry, itchy and scratchy, Bugs Bunny land for a brief moment. This Um, is where we actually were. There's even a sound effect that
1: that sounds like a cartoon sound effect. Yeah, we, we delve into a kid's movie in this particular scene. Creature stole my podcast. The candle blows out. Now, I told you earlier that the scene between Phoebe and her mom and the candle story about how the candle keeps the monsters away at one point in time could be considered a throwaway scene. It wasn't until watching the movie again for this perspective that I I noticed this for the very first time. It's, it's on camera for five seconds, but for some strange reason until now, I never noticed it, but just before Dracula arrives outside of Sean and Phoebe's house, you see their mother in the closet, looking like she's actually packing clothes to leave. And there on the nightstand is the candle that she had lit for Phoebe the night before. And it's lit. (laughs) Evidently still lit. (laughs) Maybe it's a scented candle. Who knows? Maybe. Maybe. And then all of a sudden it just Mm -hmm. blows out. And she notices that it gets blown out. And then Dracula in his ghost hearse comes (laughs) barreling through, knocks over all of their white picket fence, and probably the absolute pimpest line. Oh, it's my favorite line
2: in the film. Absolutely. Yes. I I don't think I respected it enough as a as a child because i w- would always quote wolfman's got nards but yeah that line is just
1: dracula enraged because he can't have his amlet decides well you know what i got all this dynamite the surplus in dynamite i don't know why but you know dynamite's effective it takes a whole thing of dynamite tosses it into the treehouse and walking away from it just before it explodes. The pimpest line ever. Meeting adjourned. Boom. You don't get any cooler yet sinister. Yeah, I mean, when when you think about it as a kid, like you said, you you don't really appreciate that that you, line. You think it's very cool, and you you certainly think it's you know badass on a certain
2: level. But as an not, adult, not the same way. In yeah. his
1: mind, he just blew up. Six children and a dog. Yeah. Flat out murdered them. In his
2: mind. Because he did know that they're not there. No. I think to this day, even, I think you and I still use that quote when we're having a production meeting. For we, any of the film work or, or stuff that we produce. When we know
1: we're done and we're absolutely done. And we're one ready of to us, geek out about comics
2: yeah. or whatever. Yeah, one of us usually says, meeting Meeting adjourned.
1: adjourned. Rudy versus the brides. We're hip deep into Act Three. This is the end of the movie. This is this is where all the cards are laid out. This do or die last chance saloon, and who steps up? Rudy. The car- I, Even though I was fat kid growing up, I wanted to be Rudy. We all wanted. We to be all Rudy. wanted to be Rudy. I didn't want to be Sean or Patrick. And
2: I I think everybody really at some point in time saw themselves. You either saw yourself as a Sean or a Patrick or a Fat Kid. Those were your, your three options.
1: But we all wanted to be Rudy. We all wanted to be I don't think
2: any of us were. But we all wanted, regardless of which one you identified.
1: Sadly, with. I could never even find a Rudy to be a part of my group. <laughs> but this scene has the second most pimp line. The bride show up. Everybody's panicking, and Rudy, along with his crossbow and arrows, love it. Walks past everybody else, and Rudy, where are you like, going? With a on a on a mission, like
2: he's just he's lights, done. Lights he a is.
1: cigarette. He's just he's in the zone. Mm-hmm. And they're like, Rudy, where are you going? Second most pimp line in the movie. I'm in the goddamn club, aren't I? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> pimp. As a child, oh yeah. Because I mean, l- 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 let's be honest. When did you start cursing? Oh, gosh. I in know. front of your friends. Because, you know, we, we don't curse in front of our parents.
2: Yeah, it's probably sometime around 10 or 11. Sometimes, okay. maybe 9, somewhere in that area.
1: Me too. Very young. Now, again, our parents want to believe that we were pristine angels until we hit puberty. And then, of course, we're supposed to be difficult. But that's the thing about this film is these kids back then, and even for me today, relatable. Because they talked like me and my friends talked. Uh, yeah, we cursed because we thought that it made us cool, and we did it without the parents knowing. Again, it's, you know, in a kid's mind, it's, it's a
2: uh, symbol of maturity and adulthood because right. adults curse because those are
1: words that you're not supposed to use until you're older. So mm-hmm. if you use them, oh, well, I'm older. Very similar to Back to the Future when Marty's getting away, trying to get away from the Libyans. Let's see if you bastards can do ninety. All right, just a a simple line from the film, but you you bastards, yeah, that's that's an adult Mm -hmm. word that when you're watching a PG movie, that's what Back to the Future was, Back to the Future was a PG film, when you're watching that as a kid and you want to quote that, you got to make sure that your parents aren't around because you know you're going to get in trouble, but... You still like saying it. You like saying it, yeah. You feel grown up, you know, and it's, again, it plays into that whole
2: idea that, that runs through this whole film, and, and like we said, all films in the 80s, of trying to, to find that moment where you transition from childhood to young adulthood. Thrust and, into the situation, sometimes, yeah, sometimes yeah, thrust often, into often the situation in of
1: having to grow up faster than you need to, yeah. Podcast adjourned. So a vampire and a werewolf walk into a sporting goods store. <laughs> Probably one of the most cinematic scenes in the film. Simply because of all of the practical effects used. Yet another thing that I miss about the 80s, all the practical effects being being used in films. And not just horror films, but in films in general. This scene gives us our only look and correct me if i'm wrong but i don't believe i've ever seen the midway transformation between human dracula and vampire bat dracula in any other dracula film it might have happened it's it's happened in other vampire films but not Perhaps. dracula specifically
2: yeah no i don't not not any that i know of at least talking about his mid-transformation form that you see in this scene that's the other thing I find interesting about Duncan Rager's Dracula and, and how it is portrayed not just by him but by the effects team and by the mm. director by, by Decker and Black in this film it, it, his transformation is never the same way Mm. throughout the film every time he transforms in this film it's slightly different in one case it's the shadow that turns into the bat like the old right. house of frankenstein or house of drag whichever one it was where he where dracula transforms that way i want to say there's a moment where he transforms and it's animated 2d animation like the old bella lugosi transformation in abbott and castellan frankenstein when he was. when he drops out um, of the plane oh yes yeah, see, yeah. It's, it's an animated yeah that's right yeah so you know every every transformation that he makes in the film is different, and and all of them pay tribute to or hearken to one of the classic Dracula transformations, mostly from the Universal films. Some of them from some of the Hammer series, although they didn't go into a lot of transformations in those, you know, it, it, it all pays tribute to all of those. So I'm sure at this point they were probably like, well, we're out of ideas. We've paid tribute to all the ways to transform. <laughs> what do we do? Let's again, like we've done with the look and like we've done with the, the tone and the feel, let's add our own flair. And, they came up with this midway transformation that, um,
1: which is absolutely yeah, breathtaking. It's really cool. It's, yeah. it's haunting really because he's covered. He's got shards of glass sticking out of him and he's got what looks like a human head, a furry torso with really spindly legs and his hand, his arms are still stretched out in between bat wings and his cape. Yeah. It's also one of the first times where where the clothes are actually incorporated right into it, the they transformation. They show you at that moment
2: that that that's why every time throughout the film, and in the old Universal films especially, when Dracula transforms from a bat to a human, he's still dressed right. You know, and they they make that joke in the beginning of the film about Wolfman, where you know he had to he had to wear pants, he had to cover his wolf dork. <laughs> you know, and obviously in the in the older films, that's what they did for. Vampire, you know, Dracula's transformation as well, but this almost, in in a way, explained it and did so without ever actually verbalizing it, yeah. and, and just showed you that here's how he transforms, here's how he's dressed, because it's a part, it's a part of the body, it's a part of the manifestation.
1: Even though that was cool, I think what's just as cool in this scene is some, uh, yet again something we've never seen before. Not only do we see the Wolfman explode thanks to a stick of dynamite, but we get to see a mid-air explosion. Yeah. The stick of dynamite is shoved down his pants. He sh- he's he's tossed out a window, and there, suspended in mid-air, before he hits the next building, he blows up into several giant chunky pieces. Yep. Oh, <laughs> With another uh, you know
2: it's it's not on the same level as as Rudy and Dracula, but another pimp line happens in that moment <laughs> when when Sean says, "Hey
1: asshole," Wolfman turns around
2: he goes, "You looked, and
1: bam bam yeah hits him and and that's when they're able to push him out there it's a great line, but not to mention the fact okay that but that's all just that's all just preamble, oh yeah to to the the coolest the explosion itself and the, scene. The, I think I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. It, 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 where my imagination is concerned, they don't show it in the way that you could probably show it today using CGI and things like that. But seeing the pieces of the Wolfman mm. moving, yeah, while knowing that separated, yeah, and- knowing that blowing him up with dynamite isn't going to kill a werewolf because the only one, way, only to only one, one werewolf, way to kill a werewolf and the pieces all psychokinetically just just forming back into each other, and then there you see the shadow of him full formed and the howl. Oh, yeah. Blowing up the wolf man's cool, but watching him reassemble himself with sheer force of werewolf magic. You Even know cooler. I I've always
2: werewolves and and the wolfman in particular has always been one of my very favorite monsters. And I think the wolf man was always probably my favorite of the Universal films. I I think that my fascination with werewolves and the whole lichen monster idea, I think comes from that scene. Really, I it, because they again, it's it's the idea that no silver, it's the only thing that does it. You blew him up and he's still going. He still comes together and he's unstoppable.
1: <laughs> More adult themes. So again, this is this is the end. The monsters are are advancing. And as we said before, Wolfman's not dead. Wolfman comes stalking out of the shadows. There's Rudy, surrounded by cops. Cops are trying to help, but their their guns are only loaded with regular bullets. At the same time, across the street over by the Burger King, fat kid dealing with the gill man, who has decided to pop out of the sewer. <laughs> To everyone's surprise, and stalk after fat kid, and and we actually watch the Gill Man take out like four state troopers. Yeah, by himself. So almost like like he puts his hands on their head, almost
2: like he's absorbing. I don't know, absorbing the, the, the moisture or inside of them, or something out of like them. That like that. I don't know because they very weird, very creepy. Very, yeah, they
1: don't develop it enough, and it's so cool looking, but. But here is an example of, simultaneously, you have 2 underaged characters with guns. You have Rudy with a revolver, and you've got Fat Kid with a shotgun.
2: Yeah, the, the pump action.
1: And we both witness them having to take matters in their own hand to protect themselves, to protect everybody else. And we watch Fat Kid shoot the Gill Man in the chest... And that I mean that there's a ginormous, yeah, hole. It's a great effect. Great effect. Again, the joys of practical effects. Chest is is blown open. He falls to the ground and dies. And then over on the other side of the street, Rudy has taken one of the cops' fallen police officer's revolvers, placed a silver bullet in it, and has also aimed and fired, killing the Wolfman. Now. If that was just those scenes, that would be fine. But we continue with those scenes where Fat Kid is dealing with what he has just done because he's been denied entry into the Burger King because the bullies from earlier in the movie have locked the doors and won't let him in. So that's why Fat Kid had to grow up and protect himself. And we are now seeing the end results of that because when they call him Fat Kid... He turns around with a very serious look on his face and proclaims that his name is Horace and yeah. then cocks the shotgun. Yeah. Somebody has grown up. You have you have taken that step. You are no longer a child. Yep. You are an adult. Yep. Same thing across the street. Rudy has shot the wolf man, and now there laying on the ground is the guy, the human form bullet hole in his chest, by his heart, his last breath, saying, thank you, you've released him from his curse. And everybody's looking at Rudy, and Rudy, not with some, oh, yeah, I'm a badass kind of look, the look of a child mm-hmm. turns to them and says, told you, only one way to kill a werewolf.
2: It almost brings up, you know, this this brief little moment of, again, another adult Theme and another adult topic of euthanasia, you know, showing its its face, and that you know, it's regardless of your beliefs and and regardless of of the way you believe, either way, it's a very serious and um, somber thing to to and sobering thing to think about. And I, I think you, you you're absolutely right that there is that certain childlike look on Rudy's face, but there's also a sense of maturity in there as well but of a different kind I think the the maturity and the growing up that Rudy has at that moment is very much of oh maybe maybe being the bad boy is not the way to go right anymore and um, I had to be the bad boy to do this and it had to be done but what have I done which again might be a bit of a stretch but I I think there's certainly certainly there for discussion
1: the and, and it just goes to show the adult themes that run through this quote unquote kitty movie you just can't call it a kitty movie it is not a kid it is not a family friendly horror comedy i'm just going to say it's a it's a horror comedy that has children in it give me the podcast you bitch <laughs> the horror of dracula christopher lee film oh wait no 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 (laughs) i pay homage to it though sure because we're we're, this movie does pay homage to every incarnation of dracula out there what when i say the horror i mean we see draped in electricity from the storm dracula comes stalking he wants his amulet now that we know that uh, the one virgin that we had is not a virgin we got to go with phoebe again one of the reasons why I said very important to the plot because she is the virgin that can blast a hole into Dumbo limbo. Yeah, yeah, limbo, whatever. <laughs> <coughs> so here he comes. Here comes Dracula. And he he also very much like the Gillman, he takes out a, a a gaggle of state troopers, uh, one with a punch, one with a, a a neck snap, one where he's like he's ri- he's almost ripped an arm off. It's it's
2: you know, there's a there's a moment in that scene where he's going through the street and attacking the troopers that <laughs> for a long time as a kid, I I it moves so fast and he moves so fast. And at one point he grabs a, a trooper and he kinda puts him in a headlock. Yeah. And I think I think what he does is he snaps his neck. Mm-hmm. And the guy falls, but he, he had a, a hat on, a state trooper hat, and the hat falls off. But it all happens so fast that as a kid I thought did he just pop his head off? <laughs> and it took me years of watching the movie to go, oh, wait, no, that's just the hat. And for the long, to this day, I
1: still watch that scene and go, oh, here's the head popping part. <laughs> the viciousness, the viciousness. It's, yeah. it's literally this is a character that, up until this point, our protagonist characters have been lucky that Dracula's full attention has not been on them. He's been distracted with other stuff. There's no more distractions. Uh, who's going to stop dracula who is going to stop dracula and as he moves ever closer to phoebe the third most pimp line and in one this... of the most
2: adult things because it happens between a several hundred year old man mm-hmm. and a 5 year old girl
1: he takes phoebe one hand cups her chin and just lifts her off the ground Holds her to eye level because and, he's not going to come down. Oh, to no, her. he's not going to come to her, her level holds her there looks her dead in the eye and says give me the amulet you bitch and then bears his fangs. Yeah hisses at her hisses at her and her her scream is it, it just it's blood. It's a blood curdling scream and it, it's even more impactful because it's coming from a five-year-old girl and we realize, oh shit, there's nobody that can stop Dracula. And there's no oh,
2: that character is safe in this movie because they're this age, or oh, this person will be safe because they're a young kid. No, this here's a five year old girl who the way the movie plays it out to be, and I don't you know, I don't want to get into anything about feminism here. This is not my view, this is just how the the film plays it out. You know, is portrayed as the weakest and most vulnerable character in the film.
1: Mm -hmm. Yep.
2: But in that moment, then you you learn that no one's safe, and and it shows the brutality of Dracula. That he's he's you know the here's the most vulnerable character in the film, five year old girl, and he doesn't care, and he's going to do what he needs to do to achieve his objective, and unlike other films where the villain recites his plot, his evil plot to the <laughs> hero, and then sits there and you know slowly works the, the laser beam up the table and gives the hero a plenty of... That's there's, not the case there's here. There's no monologuing he, here. There's no monologuing. He pulls her to his face. He says the famous line, Give me the amulet, you bitch. Hisses at her, and he's going to move in that moment. Mm-hmm. But he is stopped. Instantly,
1: which brings us to Frankenstein and his vengeance. Because we always get vengeance with a big smile on our face. That is a, yet another great thing about Tom Noonan as Frankenstein. Frankenstein sa- comes in, Calvary, saves the day. He's got a big smile on his face. Forces Dracula to drop Phoebe. Uh, also with one hand, makes Dracula turn around, delivers a, a, a such an 80s line. It's just one word. Bogus. <laughs> yeah. Very Bill and Ted, very West Coast surfer dude, very 80s. And Frankenstein delivers it with a smile on his face and knocks knocks him into a metal... Looks like you? it's a wrought iron fence wrought iron that fence. has like a cross sculpted. Yeah, because they're right it. outside of a the, the town church. Yeah, so the de- delivering the death blow to, to Dracula allows Phoebe to speak the German words that she needs to speak, and we we punch a hole into limbo. The podcast has nards. Don't go, Frankenstein. As a child. And I'll, I'll freely admit all of this. We're, we're close. We're all friends here. As a child, I was extremely upset as the, the, the limbo whole vortex thingy starts sucking, well, pretty much anything it could get its, its grubby little vortex hands on, including Frankenstein. I cried like a little girl. The first time I saw that, I, I literally cried so hard I had to leave the room <laughs> and go to the bathroom and compose myself before I could finish watching the movie. It affected me that much. I remember being very upset. I
2: don't know that I. I don't know if I cried. I, I can't remember, to be honest with you. I, but
1: I, I do recall being very emotionally affected by it. Growing up, my control over my emotions uh, has been greater. So. I've never had the full on panic attack-esque meltdown that I did as a child, but I cannot watch specifically this part of the film without feeling a little bit of a tug on my heartstrings and maybe, just maybe, a little lump in the back of my throat forming for a few seconds. And that's where I wanna ask the audience. Did you cry when Frankenstein was pulled into limbo? Pulled away from us by an unfeeling vortex? Or do you have no feelings in heart and soul whatsoever and you didn't feel anything? Let us know by going over to our Facebook page over at facebook.com forward slash 2 Horror. Start a new thread there and let us know did you cry over Frankenstein, or do you have no heart at all? <laughs> the good guys win! Cue the theme song! Yep. This movie had everything, including its own theme song. Right after the military shows up, a moment too late, of a course. A moment too late, The of cavalry course. always arrives after we've already accomplished Yet them. another... Horror movie, sci-fi movie gimmick. Yep. That they poke fun at, and we get to we get to enjoy the credits with some with some kick-ass 80s. Boom, 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 boom. boom, boom. What what passed for rap (laughs) at that time? Well, I will tell you this: it was no T U R T L E Power rap at the end of the original Ninja Turtles movie. No. But it was close enough to where (laughs) I'll 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 give it a pass. Well, Jason, we are running super long. We have... Uh, I, this is... I, I have no idea. <laughs> or words, apparently. I've got no... <laughs> words do not express how in-depth we have gone into this film. And I've, I've had a great time with this. But just like everything has a good, it also has a bad. And we'll tell you what those bad things are when we come back with more Perspective on the Two Guys Talking Horror perspective review of the 1987 classic, The Monster Squad.
0: Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Unlike TV or radio ads, where every instance the ads are broadcast, they're only played once and lost forever. Perpetual advertising can have repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, and even years after they're inserted in a podcast. So even if a podcast is a few years old, your ads will still be impactful to repeat listeners as well as new listeners. This gives your advertising dollar the most bang for the buck. Find out more about perpetual advertising at two twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. What's your favorite kind of car? What color is it? Did it murder people? Don't miss the Two Guys Talking Cars perspective review of 1983's Christine. An original story by Stephen King, adapted by John Carpenter. The roar of a V8. Running teenagers. Blood red asphalt.
1: VoiceFarmers.com That's VoiceFarmers.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls to Two Guys Talking Horror Perspective Review of The Monster Squad The 1987 Fred Deckard Classic So before the break, we went through a plethora of of goods. But just like everything in life, there are some bads. <laughs> the bad. Not really the universal monsters. Now, when I had to start coming up with the bads for this perspective review, I really had to start nitpicking or Nick picking as I oh nice yeah, that's good yeah uh, you like that yeah I've coined it it's copyrighted anytime somebody else says it I get a quarter I'll be sure to never say it then good sadly I I, I had to nickpick this movie because the nostalgia factor holds such a it, it holds such a high regard in my heart and soul that I really don't want to see anything bad in this movie but the adult slash storyteller slash filmmaker in me can definitely see some problems. And the first one, which is not a huge major problem, but a disappointing one, and we talked briefly about this towards the beginning of the the show, that these are not really the Universal Studio monsters. It is a shame that we didn't get to see those designs, those
2: exact designs and and that that makeup, for all of the reasons that you said, but also to, to keep alive some aspects of the Universal films that often go forgotten with a lot of even avid film fans, and that's people like Jack Pierce who designed yeah. that makeup for those original films, you know? I mean, obviously, the the names of Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and both Lon Chaney Sr. and Jr., and and then all the subsequent folks that, that jumped in as well, you know, Tom Tyler and John Carradine and, and so on and so forth, Glenn Strange, who who also, all of which played other various incarnations of the monsters throughout the franchise they all seem to get remembered jack pierce i i feel like kind of gets the shaft yeah and he doesn't get the shaft because of this movie but had they gotten to use his makeup designs and were they able to reference designs based on the jack pierce makeup or whatever mm. in the credits and and in any kind of promotional I think it could have continued his legacy on a wider scale, outside of supreme film buffs and filmmakers who who just know it. And, and I think that's really the, the biggest disappointment for me, is that Jack Pierce doesn't get his day in the sun because of it. Told you. Only one way to kill a podcast.
1: The Language of Kids Now, we touched upon this briefly during the good section where we confess that, yes, as children, we did curse out of our parents' earshots. But that's not what I'm really talking about during this point. Very early in the film, there are four, four examples where we reference some homophobic slanders. To use those homophobic slanders today would be a huge political incorrectness, and you don't hear those terms used as freely as they were in the 80s, because they were used a lot in the 80s. There are plenty of examples. After Sean and Patrick are done talking with their principal, they have a conversation about how the principal was very touchy-feely, not necessarily in a sexual way, but because they are young boys... In the 80s, they refer to his touchy feelingness as homo. He homoed out on me. He's got his homo hands all over me. Yeah. Now, that today in film and cinema, you won't see. You won't hear. Unless you're purposely trying to not like a character. You won't have your protagonist characters speak like that unless it is... A period piece. I was going to say, or unless you're setting it in a certain era.
2: Right. Um, and it, and it, obviously this doesn't come up in The Monster Squad, but you know, there's there are other less than glowing words and, and very impolite words uh, that can be used for many people that 40, 50 years ago, hell, 30 years ago, were maybe a little more commonplace. Mm. And if you do a film set in that time, well, it's unfortunate, but that's how they spoke. That's how they talked. It's true. If they did The Monster Squad today, and they set it in 2016 with kids today, I don't know that you can get away with it. No. Um, if they made The Monster Squad today, but still set it in 1987, I think there's a little bit more There's a, little bit there's more a tiny leeway. bit
1: of leeway, but still. But still. Uh, yeah, yeah. And again, I only bring that up because I, I'm not a parent, but I am an uncle, and this is a movie. My, my nephew is 14 years old. So he's the age, he's right around the age of these kids in this movie. I want to show him this movie, but there are certain parts, specifically some of the language, that I don't want to expose him to. So I am kind of torn. I am torn between, well, do I sit him down and, he's a smart kid anyway, do I sit him down and explain, well, 30 years ago, this was more commonplace than it is today? Or do I not show them the movie for a couple more years? I don't, it's, it's a catch-22. I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place and I just don't know what to do. I may not be a parent, but what about the parents that are listening? What about the aunts, the uncles? What about the older brothers or older sisters? What do you think? Would you let your teen son, daughter, nephew, niece watch this film alone and just hope for the best? Even though it has the questionable language in adult themes? Or would you watch it with them? and explain things maybe maybe educate them a little bit or would you just leave it alone completely wait until they're older let us know by going over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com fill out the web form on the right and let us know what you think <laughs> Dracula must have some sunscreen <laughs> this is a this is a big problem for a horror fan Because it makes absolutely no sense. I know Dracula, the the king of the undead, uber-powerful, been alive for a long time. But how do you explain away the fact that while on the World War II bomber, it is daylight? Sure, it might be twilight. The sun might be setting. But there is still sun out there. And he transforms into a bat, flies down through the clouds, and decides to hang out in a tree. Yeah. I call bullshit, because that can't happen. He'll burn like a crisp.
2: To be honest with you, I think I always just kind of assumed, well, I guess not always, because I didn't know of this trick when I was younger, but as I got older and into adulthood, I think I just took it as they were shooting day for night, which is a common thing on a lot of things. You shoot, you know, for those that don't know, shooting day for night means that you shoot at at very specific times during the day, and um, using the right kind of filters and, and the right kind of lighting, you can make it look like nighttime. Mm-hmm. So you shoot day for night. Right. And I and I kind of wonder if maybe they shot day for night for that moment and did it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm sorry, I hit the wrong button on the one. I don't one. know. Maybe it ran out of. Uh, we're supposed to be shooting day for of, night. I, I, I don't know. We're, we're um,
1: shooting day for 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 early darkish. Even? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that continues to bug me anytime I watch this movie. Two thousand-year-old dead guys don't get up and start podcasting by themselves. Van Helsing's diary was found at a yard sale? It's a little bit of a stretch. Again, I buy it though. I buy into it. I the mean, yard many- sale at six 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 Shadowbrook Road. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's some
2: stretches there. But, I mean, come on. How many times have you found that gem of a comic at some dirt yard sale or something? I True. Mean, you know, it's- That doesn't uh, surprise again, me. from the child's That doesn't point surprise me. The
1: thing that surprises me is that seeing the house, the old mansion on 666 who, Shetterbrook Road- there? Who's having the- Who <laughs> yeah. cleared that place out to have that yard sale? Yeah. Yeah. The Gill Man and the Mummy are hardly in this movie.
2: And when they are, they're kind of treated as, as almost jokes. I mean, when the group of monsters are first together for the first time after they have revived Frankenstein's monster yeah he's still in the crate reaching up at Dracula mm-hmm. and Dracula is reaching down to him and they're having their reunion moment and the wolf man is into it and he is howling He's howling he's at the moon howling at the moon and he's ready in the background the gill man and the mummy are just kind of hanging right. out and they're looking at each other like yeah man this is cool like they're sitting around the water cooler so
1: nice to be involved yeah like man. oh this is great how you been man <laughs> like
2: what's what the hell are those two doing
1: back there it was like they were it's red like the Bill and Ted of Monsters, what's going on? Yeah, they're there are a couple of red shirts. They they don't get enough screen time. What little screen time they get is either for their introduction or exit of the film. Yeah. Podcast adjourned. Why was (laughs) <laughs> the mummy
2: in Eugene's closet. That has always been a question for me. Even when I was a kid, I was—I remember him like running into the room and saying, "You know, Dad, there's a monster in my closet." And then the the dad goes and of course, ooh, you know, look ooh, at all these monsters! All these Get, out Get, Get out, out of here. here! Yeah, he does that whole bit with him, yeah. and and he opens the closet door, and he stands on the one side of the door, so he doesn't actually look in the closet, and you see the mummy in the closet, and then the mummy climbs out the window when Dad's not looking, and even as a kid, I was like. First off, how, why is he why does he go to random Eugene's house? There hasn't been any monster squad talk yet. There yeah. hasn't been anything. What the hell does
1: Eugene have to offer? What's in Eugene's closet that the mummy wants so that badly? He is so attracted to. And how the hell did he get out of that window so damn fast? He's ninja-ing again. He, maybe this is not emotep. Or any of the other mummies we've seen. Maybe this is a more of a Asian mummy. <laughs> Maybe ninja mummy. I don't know. So who killed the third bride? Sequel setup. I don't know. <laughs> well, we talked about this. You know, Rudy's got that pimp line. He goes. He, he he uses the bow and arrow. He takes one bride out. Three brides are there. Mm-hmm. He takes one bride out with the bow and arrow. The brides start moving a little bit faster. Evidently. And the second bride almost gets the drop on Rudy, to where Rudy just has to pull the stake out of the quiver and stab her through the heart. But what happened to the third bride? We yeah. we never get to see what happened to the third bride when we come back to Rudy, who is now surrounded by cops who are trying to protect him from the Wolfman.
2: You just you, uh, yeah you, just, you, have, to you have to assume that he has disposed of
1: it. That you know. he, being the the badass character that he is, took out the third bride in a way that, you know, it was just so boring you didn't have to see it on film. Creatures stole my podcast. The Dracula force beam from hand power.
2: <laughs> you gotta add your own flair to the mythology, I guess, you know.
1: <laughs> Unt- you know what? Actually, until watching it for this perspective review, I never questioned it until today. And maybe it again it's me just nickpicking but now this kind of harkens back to Christopher Reeve's Superman and Superman 2 pulling, pulling off the, the yep, S and mm-hmm. it turning into this giant foil blanket blanket net thing thingy. Yeah. I'm I, I've read Superman comic books I've watched the cartoons I've seen the other movies I have never heard of a power in which Superman can tear off his S and evidently he's got more underneath Yeah it's it's really well, reusable thin. Very, they're very thin, thin. But I've never seen him just tear off his ass, throw it, and it turns into this giant saran wrap thing. Same thing here with this glowy, I will take out scary German guy with my hand gesture thing. And it really didn't hurt scary German guy because all he does is just falls down. Yeah, it's almost like a paralysis thing or something. I've never seen, I've seen him, I've seen Dracula use his eyes and... You know the the power of hypnotic suggestion and things like that, but not like some light, bright, glowy thing from his hand. Van Helsing knows about
2: thumbs up. That's the other one that always bothered me. Like, what? Really? Did they did they have the
1: Fonzie thumbs up back in eighteen eighty eight or eighteen eighty nine? I mean, really, the only thing the only thing that I can think of is that while in limbo. You get to see things that are happening in the real world, maybe, maybe I don't know. I'm this is I'm stretching here. <laughs> I can't explain why Van Helsing would give the thumbs up to Sean.
2: Maybe, maybe blowing a hole into limbo is not. Maybe it's actually like some sort of worm. Is it, talk about stretching. Now I'm stretching. Here we go. Maybe it's blowing some sort of wormhole, and that the the limbo place is on the other side of the galaxy and. And happy okay, days whoa, 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 Happy whoa. Days waves and reruns uh, have just reached so I don't know. I'm reaching here.
1: Give me the podcast, you bitch. Why did the military respond to a child's letter? And and not just a child's letter,
2: but a, a child's letter that is maybe ten words long.
1: And written... In crayon. in crayon! In crayon! That's another thing. Even as a kid, I, I could never believe the that yeah. ending part where the military shows up. I mean, I get what the filmmakers were doing sure. by adding that in. But I never understood the logic behind it. Yeah. <laughs> the franchise. Now, like we said earlier, this is being recorded this this particular perspective review is being recorded at the tail end of 2016 and in 2017 the monster squad will celebrate its 30th anniversary wow even though that there has never been a sequel i do enjoy the fact that this film has not been touched or tarnished by grubby hollywood hands there were was talk a few years ago about a remake of this film and i think at the time fred decker was even attached to it which would not
2: bother me if they get him or shane black involved i might be able to get behind a remake
1: depending on the involvement of the original architects of the the original film will dictate how well the reboot slash remake would go and and what you know it what
2: the concept for because obviously if they if they did a remake they would be looking at franchise because that's what, that's what you do now Hollywood yes now. you know that would also then it would also depend on what the plans would be for a franchise you know I I always thought that it would be cool to see sequels and we have done the Monster Squad going up against the Universal monsters how cool would it be that if each film they went up against a different era of monsters. Yeah, I don't know how you work it into where the Monster Squad goes up against Kong and Godzilla and
1: Rodan, and then the giant Japanese. They'd kaiju have to. Things. They'd have to know. team up with Japanese scientists and, and, and create, get mechs.
2: Yeah, some sort of mech robots, stuff like and that. Monster. Mechs. They will
1: form Voltron. <laughs> yeah,
2: you know, and see it even evolve all the way up into the point where you get you know the Monster Squad versus a, a Dream Monster and a Camp Killer, and mm. you know. It, I think it could be a, a really fun, tongue-in-cheek franchise if done correctly. And there's uh, a boy, <laughs> you yeah. get a little nervous when you hear the term remake.
1: Podcast has Nards. Favorite scenes. Now we have talked in depth about this film, and I know this is going to be hard, Jason, but it is now time. To man up and tell me, and the rest of our listeners, what is your favorite scene from The Monster Squad?
2: Surprisingly, not that hard. Oh, really? Actually, for You don't me. have to think about it at no, all. No, don't have to think. I, there's a lot of great scenes here, and yep. there's a lot that come close. But no, I think, for me, you know, yeah, when I was a kid, I had watched Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, and I watched House of Frankenstein, and House of Dracula, right. and Frankenstein meets a wolf. And I had seen monsters interact with each other before... But when I was nine, ten years old, and I saw this movie for the first time, the moment in the swamp when the monsters are all together for the very first time. And I know I just made fun of it as a Man and mummy <laughs> hanging out in the back like Bill and Ted or something. But at the same time, that moment for me was like it gave me Geek chills. Right. I think you know what I mean by geek yeah, chills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To a nine- or ten-year-old kid, it was the coolest thing. You know, the only other time that I can equate that feeling, that exact same feeling that I had with that scene, is at the end of the first Avengers film. Mm. And that 360 shot of the Avengers together for the first time in right. battle. And you sit there and you go, oh my God, there they are. There's the Avengers and i think that was the feeling that i had when i saw this it was it wasn't that it was so unusual to see the monsters together cuz like i said i had seen that but it was almost like and to a 10 year old 12 million sounds like a massive budget even yeah. if it isn't so you know it's that idea of oh my god here they are all together on a
1: big budget scale mm. in my mind and to this day that's still my favorite scene if i if i have to absolutely gun to my head pick a scene it's going to have to be Dracula slowly advancing on Phoebe as a brother, as an older brother especially watching that film even though I don't like to admit that I care for my, my little sister There are there is a protective aspect to being an older sibling and to see this horrible monster just slowly advancing knowing that nobody can stop him and doing whatever he wants, and and just being completely and utterly cruel and bloodthirsty towards the small little girl, gives me chills. My favorite scene in the movie is, Dracula, give me the amulet, you bitch. Boogus bam! That whole scene, that, that boom, that chunk, best part of the movie for me. And that's when we ask you, what was your favorite scene in the monster squad. Let us know by going over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com Fill out the web form on the right and let us know. Did your favorite scene involve the gill man? Does it involve fat kid? Are you more of a scary German guy fan? Whatever the case, go on over to our website and let us know.
2: Told you. One way
1: to kill a podcast. And now it's time for us to rate The Monster Squad, 1987, directed by Fred Deckard. The scale works thusly. One, sucks. Absolutely sucks. There's no no hope for this movie. This movie is a World War II bomber carrying crates. Nobody knows how they scheduled this flight. A 10 is we've got the amulet, the monsters are dead, and Frankenstein, he's still with us, and he's living in the treehouse. Everything starts at a 7. The numbers go up with positives. The number goes down with negatives. And Jason? There are no halvesies. What do you got, Jay? For me,
2: any of the negatives that this film has are washed away by the nostalgic factor of the film. hmm Okay. And and there aren't many negatives in the film, and I think you know we kind of touched on a couple of things that that we obviously nick picked on,
1: right? But um, you owe me a quarter. Damn it! <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I don't think it loses, it for me anyway. It doesn't lose very many points, one or two maybe. But I think the nostalgic factor alone, both in my memory of this film as a, as a child, but also in the sort of one of the first retro films, one of the first films to kind of go back and, and do bigger budget versions of older properties. Right, I, I think those two ideas and that kind of a nostalgic angle of this film really adds a few points to it, and so i, I, I got to go with an 8 for this.
1: Completely agree. The whole nostalgic factor, there are a lot of films, especially from this era, that will always get the rose-tinted glasses treatment from me, even though, yes, we will nitpick at certain things. There are only maybe one or two major glaring, what-the-hell type of moments where this film's concerned. I I, I would love to just let my eight-year-old self be able to dictate what my rating's going to be, but I have to be realistic. I love this film. It's not a perfect film in any stretch of the imagination. And I, too, give The Monster Squad 1987, directed by Mr. Fred Decker, an eight as well. And that's where we ask you, what would you rate The Monster Squad? The 1987 classic. This film that has all of the great monsters rolled up in a nice 92-minute bow package for you. Let us know by heading over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Fill out the web form on the right and let us know what's your rating. Well, Jason, this has been an epic podcast perspective review. This has been almost as epic as the movie itself. But sadly, just like all good things, they must come to an end. So, until next time, I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, one of your hosts. And I'm Jason Contini, your other host. And remember, don't be afraid of the dark. Be afraid of what's in the dark. Congratulations. You've survived this episode of Two Guys Talking Horror. We hope you were entertained and informed by our program. Take what you have learned and pass it on to your family and friends. It may just save their lives someday. Have questions? Comments? Suggestions for a future episode? Visit our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Click anywhere on the right hand side and fill out our short web form. It's the easiest way to interact with the hosts. Beware of monsters, creatures, and all things that go pump in the night. Keep telling yourself it's only a podcast. It's It's only only a podcast.
0: podcast.
1: It's only a podcast.
0: It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's only a a podcast. podcast.